Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Okay, thanks, Michelle. Uh, can I ask you, please, to make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you uh, and also take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in. You'll see on the inside a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about. You'll notice on there there's a couple of blanks that I will get you to fill in, so there should be pens in front of you that will be helpful. Um, and at the very end, there's a couple of discussion questions that we'll spend a couple of moments just talking with each other about at the end of this time. Well, um, here at Trinity, we spent the last seven months, actually, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we've been seeing how Jesus changed the lives of those who met him and lived with him and actually saw him up close and personal. Uh, by contrast, this new series that we're starting today and that will run through most of, February, uh, most of May, um, it's a series in Paul's letter to Titus. And what it does is it explores the difference that Jesus makes to the Christians who lived after Jesus was on earth. Uh, and so these are people who never actually met Jesus face to face. Uh, they are just like us in many ways. It's going to ask the question, how does Jesus change everything for a church that honours Jesus as our oldest brother, as the son of our heavenly father, and as the senior pastor or the chief shepherd of the flock? Uh, in saying that it's a letter from Paul to Titus, it's worth me pointing out uh, that um, you know, that slightly awkward observation that really what we're doing is we're reading someone else's mail, um, and that's what we'll be watching in on for the next few weeks. Uh, or if you know, reading mail doesn't appeal to you, it's the idea that you're actually reading someone else's text messages. Um, so I get that that's a little bit uncomfortable in some ways, possibly even intrusive. Um, nevertheless... If you look on the left-hand side of your outline, uh, the conviction that we have is that this is still useful for us. So 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, let's have a look at uh, Paul's letter to Titus then. Just the first nine verses today. Uh, we're starting in verses one through four with the introductions. Uh, let me read out the first four verses for us again, and then I'll make a couple of comments. Uh, Titus chapter one, verse one. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Okay, well, there's the introductions. Uh, What immediately strikes me, actually, is verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. Paul writes, To Titus, my true son in our common faith. My true son in our common faith. A couple things to notice. Firstly, Paul calls Titus my true son, and in so doing, what he's describing is a bond that's even stronger than biological. See, Paul and Titus aren't actually related. In fact, Paul is a Jew and Titus is a Gentile, so they could not be further apart. But still, Paul will call him my true son. And the reason, I think, why Paul shows such tender affection for Titus is because in a Christian family, uh, you've heard me say this lots of times, in a Christian family, the vertical completely transforms the horizontal. The vertical, that is everyone who has a relationship with God, that's the vertical, you find wonderful new relationships with others. That's the horizontal. And in fact, this theme of family is going to come through really powerfully in Titus chapter 2. So the first thing you notice is that Paul calls Titus my true son, and yet he's not his actual biological son. That's why he says my true son in our common faith. In our common faith. Now, it's helpful to know that when he talks about our common faith, he means more than just in the faith we have in common or the faith that we share. Actually, what it means is just in our ordinary faith or our everyday faith or possibly our everywhere faith, which is a reminder, I think, of verse 1, the faith of God's elect all over the world. Now, don't mishear me, this common faith is actually quite remarkable. Uh, Look at the way in which Paul introduces himself in verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this out again and then just uh, highlight something for you. Verses 1 through 3, this is Paul introducing himself. So verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. So, here's the obvious question. Why do you think that Paul has such a lengthy, wordy and formal greeting when clearly he and Titus know each other? In fact, they know each other so well that he will call Titus my my true son in the common faith. Uh, Let me make an illustration to draw comparison would you start a letter to a friend that you were writing in this way? My guess is, of course you wouldn't. Actually, none of you write letters. So would you start a text message to a friend? Actually, most people don't even bother with their name, either at the start or the end, much to the disappointment of older people. Um, Why do you think Paul goes to all this effort with such a long introduction? Well, I think the reason is that the letter gives Paul an opportunity the introduction, to focus less on himself 
and more on the God in whom we have faith and whom Paul serves. In fact, if you come back to verse 1, you'll see two big picture reasons behind the specifics of why Paul was writing to Titus in the first place. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. To further the faith of God's elect and to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. How is that all possible? Well, actually, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. Because hope, of course, is what sustains us and keeps us going, even when it's really hard to live by faith and not by sight. Well, that's the introduction to the letter. Uh, Let's get into it and see then what Paul has to say, kind of moving from the big picture to the specific details of how Jesus changes everything about the way in which we live. This is point two on your handout on the left-hand side. Appoint elders and overseers in every town, verses five through nine. Now, it's worth me pointing out that actually um, we don't have many details about the specific background to the letter. Um, uh, presumably, that's because actually the details were known already to Paul and to Titus. That's why he didn't need to rehash them. The short version, and this much we can uh, uncover, I think, Uh, The short version is that Paul and Titus had been on mission in Crete together, uh, setting up churches all over the island in a number of towns. And then at some point, Paul's had to leave before the task was finished. We don't know why, but he's had to go. And so he's left Titus in charge to finish the job. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, I presume, of course, and we're told there, Paul directed Titus before he left. I presume that Paul left pretty specific verbal instructions to Titus before he, before he disappeared, um, which, of course, suggests the reason why he's writing again uh, with the same instructions is because it's really important. So reminder for us, I think, that Paul's letter to Titus is relevant to us today because it will describe the type of leaders we need in our church family because it's actually going to describe the kind of church that we want to be. And as they say, it's very hard to rise above the level of our leaders. Well, in verses 6 through 9, Paul has a whole series of characteristics of church leaders. Uh, Let me read them out and then make a few comments about them. Pick it up with me in verse 6. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refuse those who oppose it. Okay. Well, the first thing that you notice, of course, is that, well, there are a lot of characteristics, aren't there? There are a lot of qualifications or requirements for a church leader. Now, actually, in the passage, he talks about elders and overseers. They're slightly different things, but for simplicity, I'm just going to refer to church leaders from now on. There are a lot of characteristics there, aren't there? Uh, Fifteen of them, in fact. 
If you look at your handout on the left-hand side, I've, I've listed them there, again, for simplicity. Uh, verse 6 starts with three positive characteristics, uh, three descriptions of what a church leader should be like. So verse 6, blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Uh, then in verse 7, Paul lists uh, six what you might call negative characteristics, that is what a church leader should not be like. Uh, verse 7, a blameless, uh, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, what's interesting, actually, is that Paul repeats blameless. Did you notice that? Blameless is in verse 6 and in verse 7. He repeats it. Why? Well, perhaps to say that blamelessness can be framed both by what you are like and what you are not like. And maybe that's why Paul doesn't really mince his words, does he, with those five nots. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Maybe he spells them out. Because if truth be told, we'd rather not dwell on the negatives if we could avoid it. In verse 8, Paul then lists uh, six, I guess, more positive characteristics of what a church leader should be like. Perhaps this is so we don't feel too down after verse 7. Uh, but verse 8, hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. And then lastly, in verse 9, Paul lists one ministry skill or core competency. Verse 9, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Uh, when Paul speaks of holding firmly to the trustworthy message, I think he's referring back to verse 1. Verse 1, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Well, there's a lot of characteristics, aren't there, for a church leader? Let me offer just two brief reflections uh, on what that looks like for us today. And you'll see them, actually. They're important, so I've written them down for you on your handout. The bottom left there. Two brief reflections on the 15 characteristics of a church leader. Firstly, in church leadership, personal character and conviction comes before competence. In church leadership, personal character and conviction comes before confidence. Why do I say that? Well, what I find fascinating is that as I look over that list of 15 characteristics of a church leader, Paul only mentions one ministry competence. He only mentions one ministry skill. Now, these days, organisations often talk about a skills matrix, are the various things that you require... As far as Paul is concerned, there is only one. And what's fascinating is it's not the one thing that you might expect of a church leader. So it's not that the leader be a great preacher or an inspiring visionary or a strategic thinker. Look at verse 9 again. Simply, they hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. And why? Well, verse 9 so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
I've had the privilege of serving in pastoral ministry now for over 20 years. Um, what I've learnt from all the teams that I've served on or that I've led is that when it comes to ministry, most skills, what we call competence, most skills can be developed with sufficient training and with sufficient support. With enough investment in what's called human capital, most people will grow as leaders. But what takes time and what always emerges because it can't be faked is the forging of Christian character and the development of Christian conviction. It's what Paul referred to so elegantly back in verse 1 as knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth, conviction that leads to godliness, character. And so actually, that's what we look for first and foremost in any team that I've, in any position that I've ever recruited for or anyone I've ever served under. Yeah, what's really eye-opening is that with the possible exception of verse 9, every single one of those 15 characteristics of a church leader could, and in fact probably should, apply to every Christian person. I mean, look at the list again. That's why I printed it there for you in your handout on the left-hand side. Look at all those characteristics that are described there. That list ought not be limited to church leaders. It really ought to be true of every church member. Or put it slightly differently, leaders will be recruited from members who already live this way. So that's the first comment. In church leadership, personal character and conviction comes before ministry competence. Here's my second reflection. It's there at the bottom of the page. God sets very high standards for church leaders. God sets very high standards for church leaders. Now, the reason why I say God sets very high standards is because you'll recall back in verse 1 again, Paul described himself not as a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist or a church planter. Look at how Paul described himself in verse 1, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect. These standards of church leaders that Paul describes, they're not Paul's standards, they're not Paul's expectations, they are God's and they are Jesus's. And it raises the question for us, are they therefore impossibly high? Could anyone meet the requirements of Titus chapter 1? Take for example verse 6. In verse 6, Paul says that a church leader is a man whose children believe. A man whose children believe. Does that mean that if a minister's child renounces the faith, that such a painful tragedy should automatically disqualify the minister from ministry as well? Or to put it slightly differently, if you're a church leader, can you ever transgress? Or is it a case of one strike and you're out when it comes to church leadership? Well, there's a lot I could say on this topic. Um, I, for one, as a member of staff, am acutely aware of just how important the issues are. Let me just say tonight that 
I think there are some failings that are permanent disqualifiers. And what I want to say to you is that the whole of the Trinity Network takes this very seriously, takes these matters so seriously that um, on our website you will find policies and processes for raising concerns about any of our church leaders. And if that's something that you feel is important, then I encourage you to do so. Instead, what I'd simply like to do tonight is remind us of the wonderful gospel relief and comfort that we're going to see in chapter 2. Um, on the right-hand side of your handout, you'll see at the top there, on the right-hand side, I printed just a few verses from Titus chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says. Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What Paul is going to do is remind us that God's grace doesn't just save us from our sins. God's grace also equips us to do the good works he's prepared for us in advance to do. And that happens as God's grace reshapes our character and transforms our convictions to conform us more and more in the image of God's own Son. Well, having said all that, what I'd like to do for the rest of our time, for just a few minutes, is spend a little bit of time focusing on one of those 15 characteristics uh, that's actually going to be really significant in the whole letter. Now, I'm aware that any of those 15 characteristics is worthy of a whole sermon in and of themselves. Fear not, I've resisted the temptation. I'm just going to focus on one of them, and it's the one from verse 8, which I think is in fact the key to the whole letter. Verse 8, one who loves what is good. One who loves what is good. Now, if you look at your Bibles again, you'll see that just before for verse 5, there's a heading there. It says, appointing elders who love what is good. I want to say that for once, I think the NIV heading is spot on. Uh, I don't often say that. Um, now, in case you're not aware, the headings in the Bible, they're not part of the original text. The publisher has just added them in uh, to be helpful. And this time, it is helpful, I think. Um, it's, it's the reason, though, why we don't normally read the headings out when the Bible is read for us, because they're not part of the original. Paul speaks of elders who love what is good. And here's the really interesting thing. That phrase, love what is good or good, it, in just three chapters of Titus, the word for good, uh, there's actually two words in the original, the words for good appear nine times. Three chapters, nine times, the word good. And in fact, I've listed them there all for you. On your handout on the right-hand side, you'll see them there. Um, two different words in the original, but translated into English. As you look at those nine occurrences, what will strike you is that six of them, six of the occurrences of the word good, are in con connection with good works or doing what is good. And so, here's the big idea. Here's the blank for you to fill in. If you've got a pen there, you can fill in the blanks on the page. Loving what is good leads to doing what is good. According to Paul in Titus, loving what is good invariably leads to doing what is good. Now, can I say 
This is a lovely description of the kind of leaders that Titus is to appoint in Crete. A lovely description of the kind of leaders that members are to follow. In fact, will long to follow. Paul isn't calling for leaders who are strong and decisive, who are inspirational or wise. Just leaders who love what is good. In saying love what is good, he doesn't mean just hate what is bad. Hate what is bad, that's the bare minimum. He calls the leaders who love what is good. Not leaders who love what is mine, or love what makes me happy, or love what brings me satisfaction. I think that's the modern day idol of self-fulfillment. No, Paul calls for leaders who love what is good. In the sense, I think, in that phrase, love what is good, it's of delighting and rejoicing in those good things that are good in and of themselves. I want to say that this has challenged me this week. As I've reflected and thought about this passage, leaders who love what is good. It's made me wonder, is this me? Is this how you see me? Because it can be tempting at times to be defeatist or apathetic or even discontented. And yet according to Titus chapter 1, a large part of my particular role in our church family is to keep reminding us that we have a wonderful hope based entirely and ultimately on God's goodness. I often say that as Christians, it's right that we are pessimistic. We're pessimistic because of sinful human nature. We're pessimistic because of the brokenness in the world around us. That is right. And yet at the same time as Christians, we are unfailingly optimistic because of what God is like. He is the God of unfailing love, whose ways are always right, always just. He is the God whose mercy is new every morning. Well, the million dollar question, of course, then is, how do you come to love what is good? How do you come to love what is good? Now, print it there on your handout because it's so important. Um, let me try and answer it with perhaps the least profound thing I will say. How do you come to love what is good? Well, you spend more time dwelling on good things. You spend more time thinking about good things. You spend more time filling your mind with good things. That's how you come to love what is good. Look at the way in which Paul expresses it in Philippians chapter 4. These are famous words, well known and well loved by many Christians, printed there on your outline. Philippians 4 verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How do you come to love what is good? You spend your time dwelling on good things. And this, I think, is the profound insight from Thomas Chalmers. Now, Thomas Chalmers, you'll see there's a reference to him there on your handout under recommended reading. As you know, I like to try and give you other resources to read and to follow up on because there's only so much you can cover in a 30-minute sermon. Uh, this one here is not a book, it's just a, a short article. It's about 10 to 15 pages long. You can download it from there. 
uh, Thomas Chalmers, a number of years ago, wrote a really influential essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's the, here's the short version. His profound insight was that the best way to drive out evil is to replace it with something good. The best way to drive out evil is to replace it with something good because, in many ways, our minds are like empty vessels. Or better still, they're like vacuums. Until you fill it up with something better, the old and broken ways will keep flooding back. The expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, that's the reason why all the times when you have tried but failed to get rid of one of those negative or not good characteristics from Titus 1, all the times when you've tried but failed, one of the reasons is because you haven't replaced them with a more powerful desire for something better. What is that better thing? Well, let me ask. What is true? What is admirable? What is noble? What is right? What is pure? What is lovely? If not God himself. Or to make this a bit more memorable, what's the goodest thing that you know? What's the goodest thing that we can have? What's the goodest thing that you can love? If it is not God himself. That's the reason why I think Titus chapter 1 expects more than just leaders who love what is good. Paul, I think, is imagining entire churches filled with members, all of whom love what is good. Once again, that's where leaders will be drawn from. And here's the thing. Thankfully, I happen to know that that's true of us here at Trinity. That we're a people who love what is good and I know that's true because the way in which you're going to answer the last question that I have for us tonight, the last question, here it is. What good things do you delight to hear about when you come to church on a Sunday night? What good things do you delight to hear about when you come to church on a Sunday night? What makes for a great Sunday so that when you leave it will be with a smile on your face, rejoicing, saying, gosh, it was great coming to church this week. Well, can I say, it's not hearing that so-and-so got a new job or that so-and-so got a promotion or that someone else got married or had a baby or returned from an overseas holiday or finished a home renovation. Can I say, those are good things and they're worthy of our celebration because they're good gifts from a good, good father who loves us dearly. But those aren't the things that we delight in. Actually, I think the thing that I hear people say most often in this church that they love to hear about and that they delight in uh, is actually one of two different stories, um, both of which I heard this week. So I thought I'd just share them with you. One of those situations, well, that's when you hear that someone has turned to Christ. You hear someone to, like, that's a pretty good night at church, isn't it? You come to church, not sure what you're going to hear about, but you go home hearing about someone who has turned to Christ in the week gone by. And I want to say to you that that happened in this week that's just passed. Uh, after church last Sunday, uh, someone who's been coming here for a while has just been quietly sitting in one of the pews uh, for a number of months, just trying to work things out, 
was talking with one of the pastoral staff afterwards. He said to this person, what do you reckon about this Jesus thing? And the person said, yeah, I, I think I'm ready to turn to Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that what you love to hear about? Isn't that what is good? Um, can I say, in two weeks' time, uh, on May the 15th, we're going to have Commitment Sunday, like we do several times a year. It's a chance for uh, people to be baptised and to declare publicly what God has done for them and how he's changed their life. That will be a great night, something to look forward to. But you know, the other story that I hear so often that people delight uh, to hear and that they love to hear, so when you hear about someone who's grown as a believer and they're doing the good works that he's prepared for us in advance to do. I thought I'd tell you about um, a lady who comes to one of our morning gatherings. Uh, as you recall, nearly two years ago, we relocated a number of people from our morning gathering off-site to Temple Christian College because there wasn't enough space here during the pandemic. Um, and she went with the gathering, uh, not because that was the group who we particularly asked to go, but because there were lots of kids and she wanted to be involved in the kids' ministry. And she spent a year and a half there uh, serving so faithfully. Um, when they finished up at the end of last year, she came back, although actually she's not been to church uh, until the last few weeks. Why do motorbikes always go past? Um, she's not actually been able to come in person to church on a Sunday because she works in a high-risk COVID setting. But a couple of weeks ago, she was finally able to come back. You know, she, did, she emailed me this week gone by and said to me that um, she'd like to restart her accreditation to serve in the kids' ministry again. I presume because she wants to encourage others with sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. Those are stories, I think, of what it means to love what is good. Well, uh, I'm going to finish tonight with something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to tell you a modern-day parable uh, that I heard years ago. Um, it's about what we choose to fill our minds with um, and what implications and consequences that brings. Um, can I say, I know it's corny, all right? But it makes the point, and if you've heard it before, that's fine, just play along. Um, after I finish, after I finish telling you the parable, um, what I'd like you to do is turn to the person next to you, and you'll see at the bottom right-hand side, there's a couple of four discussion questions. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes at that point to talk about these two things. Have a look at them there. Who is someone you know who loves what is good? And what steps might you take this week to fill your mind with the good things of God? Uh, but first, let me tell you this parable. It's called, it's there on your handout, The Unwanted House Guest. The Unwanted House Guest. One day when I was growing up, my dad invited a guest to come and stay with us. What I remember most about this guest is that he was the most amazing storyteller. He could weave incredible tales of adventure and mystery and romance. He talked about faraway places that we'd never been to, but had only ever heard about. And he could make us laugh for hours on end. He was so captivating, so enthralling, that we'd lose track of time, and when he started talking, we just sat back and soaked it all up. Dad thought he was great. But after a while, Mum would usually get up, quietly go to her room, start reading her Bible and pray. In hindsight, I wonder if she was praying that the guest might leave. You see, the funny thing about this guest is that 
although my parents were Christians and had some pretty firm views about what was right and wrong, what was good and what was not, this house guest never seemed to feel any obligation to honour those standards. For example, we were never allowed to swear. Never. Dad would get so mad if we did. But when this guest did, and he did it a lot, no one would say anything. We'd all just look away and pretend that he hadn't. But he had. Uh, My parents, uh, they were teetotalers. They refused to allow smoking in our house, but this guest kept offering us kids alcohol and cigarettes and telling us how good they'd make us feel. And no one ever told him to stop saying that either. I can still remember the night at dinner when mum and dad told us about sex. Now, can I say that was a bad night? They talked about how it was a wonderful act between a husband and a wife who so loved each other that they wanted to give themselves fully to each other. But this guest was always making all kinds of lewd and suggestive comments. Actually, he wasn't very subtle at all. Well, years passed, I grew up, and eventually I moved out and into my own place. And the first thing that I did was start looking for a housemate, just like the house guest that Dad had invited over, because I couldn't imagine living without someone like that in my life. His name? This is the corny part. We called him the TV. Okay, a couple of minutes with the person next to you. Who is someone you know who loves what is good and what steps might you take this week to fill your mind with the good things of God? Over to you. Um, Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to be a people who love what is good. Uh, Thank you that you are the source of all good things in our lives. Uh, Above all, we thank you for your Son in whom we have life and hope. We pray that in this week ahead you might fill our minds with those things that are pure and noble and lovely and admirable, that in so doing we might be changed to be more and more like Jesus for his sake. Amen.